Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Good morning, everyone. Really glad that you're joining us here this morning, and again, a huge hello to the many of you watching and listening online. Well, we're now coming near the end of our series called A Normal Christian Life, as we've been walking as a family, a church family, through the book of James. If you've got a Bible this morning, uh, in any form, please turn to James chapter 5. That's where we're going to be together as a family today. I need to admit this morning, I come to you with genuine fear and trembling, The topic today in our series is difficult, it's fraught with misunderstanding, and this passage has been abused and misused in all sorts of church contexts over the last 2,000 years. I'd just like to say this this morning before I begin. Please, as I'm speaking this morning, keep your ears open, keep your heart open, and be reminded that God comes to us at different times in our life in different ways to help us along. Our God is a holy God, but he is a loving God also. And sometimes he brings strong words to us as individuals or corporately as a family for our own good. So as we read through this this morning, please understand that the living God does not come to beat us up. He comes to set us free from things that we think are helpful and are not. Be prepared this morning because today's passage is probably the second most difficult in the New Testament. But before we get there, I think we need to start somewhere else. I think we need to go all the way back to the beginning of our series because only when we see James chapter 5 through the very first verse in James will things become clear again. Hear it for the first time or hear it all over again. This is how James started his letter to this group of Christians. Remember, too, that James is the half-brother of Jesus, hung out with Jesus, grew up with Jesus. And so much of what he'll say in James 5 today, Jesus has already said multiple times. It starts like this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just stop and hear that phrase just for a second. Servant of God. God. It means slave of God and of the Lord Jesus. It captures the concept of God's ownership over his people and their willingness to carry out and do God's will. That little phrase implies a lot of things. It implies obedience, loyalty, and service to God. As one wrote hundreds of years ago, an involuntary slave is a slave that fears punishment, and therefore service never springs from one thing, love. But a voluntary servant really is no different than a son or a daughter. Look at the title that Jesus has given here. He is called the Lord Jesus Messiah or the Lord Jesus Christ, which implies simply that you cannot have Jesus to just save you of your sins as Savior. You must also have his lordship over your your life. James roots his coming description of a normal Christian life and all of James 5 in the understanding that we who claim to be Christians this morning or this evening, we who are listening and watching at this moment, we all need to understand understand this. We are no longer in charge of our lives. We are no longer the masters of our house or the masters of our destiny. When we meet Jesus and surrender to him, we embrace him as Savior, but also embrace him as Lord and King. See, Jesus' saving work and his reign and rule are called into our life, and they're supposed to build our worldview and our everyday life. Lordship, then, is seen in the everyday life through an ongoing, transformed life. 
As we've already learned in this series, James again and again and again hammer ho- hammer ho- hammers home the idea that you cannot just have Jesus as Savior and think everything's okay if there is no evidence that Jesus is changing you and over time you are becoming like him. There is a great chance you've never met the one you claim to know. That's why in James 2, he said in verse 18, some will say, well, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. But what does James say? I will show you my faith by what I do. James is charging against the idea of easy believism. James says, you will know that you're a real follower of my brother Jesus as you become like him over time. As we learned already, James points out to I think the discomfort of many of us, that the transformation of Christianity and the living Jesus in us will be most evident in two places, how we use our tongue and how we use our money. Last week, Dave preached powerfully about money out of James 4 and God's expectations about wealth. Well, I need to say right up front again, we're not done yet on that topic, because James decides to go there again in James chapter 5. The words from James still, I think, from last week hang in the air, don't they? Uh, They sure made me shiver and and wonder and question, Lord, are you saying this to me? Are are you saying to this, uh, are you saying this to us as a church? Is greed or cheerful giving what truly marks us as a community? Do you remember the words of James from last week? Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and they don't do it, they sin. Those who know the good they ought to do and choose willfully not to do it as a follower of Jesus, they sin. You see, God comes to us now again this day and says, friends, my my fellow workers, my bride, my people, the lordship of my son, your freedom, which is connected to it, much of the time is resisted in many areas, but especially money. Open your heart and your mind and your eyes, for much is to be done among you, and much is to be done among those who do not know me yet. Never forget, he says to us this morning, there is a world, there is a world groaning under the slavery of sin, groaning under the terror of the demonic, and knowingly or not, many are waiting for my freedom. But that freedom, hear this, that freedom must begin among us first. There is one Lord in this house, God says, and it is not you, it is me. I've already told you, he says, that you cannot have friendship with the world and friendship with me. So he says, hear us, hear me today. Be prepared to listen and respond. Now before we go right to James 5, some needed background. I was reading this weekend, one author, an editor in Christian Today, really helped me out because he was struggling genuinely with the issues of money and wealth and poverty and giving and the desires of God. And he asked this question, and it's a needed one before we get there. Listen, he said, why does God all the time give special preferential treatment to the poor from Genesis to Revelation? I mean, what makes them so special? Why do they deserve God's special concern? He wrote, I received help on this issue from another writer who actually listed, listen to this, the advantages of being a person in poverty. I was struck when I read that. He said, listen, there are ten reasons why. The first one is this, the poor know that they're in urgent need of redemption. They know it. The poor know that they're in trouble. The poor know they need to be saved. Do you? 
He said the poor know not only their dependence on God and on powerful people, but they also know their interdependence on one another. There's no lone rangers. It's survivalism. The third is the poor rest their security not on things, but on people. The fourth is the poor have no exaggerated sense of their self-importance. And they have no exaggerated sense, ready, of privacy. What marks us as middle-class people? My rights, and don't think you have any right to know about me or what's going on. Privacy is my God-given right. The poor say, we don't even have time for that. We don't have that luxury. The fifth one is this. The poor expect little from competition, much from cooperation. The sixth is, the poor can distinguish between necessity and luxury. Seven, the poor can wait because they've acquired a kind of dogged persistence born of acknowledged dependence. Eight, the fears of the poor, they're much more realistic and less exaggerated because they know that you can survive with great suffering and little want. Nine, when the poor have the gospel, when the gospel is given to them, it sounds like good news to them, not like a threat or scolding. That's important for us today. And ten, when the poor, the poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality because they have so little to lose and they're just ready for anything. Basically, the richer you get, the more you have to lose the less maybe you see God. I think Jesus talked about that. In summary, he wrote, though there's no choice of their own sometimes, though they may urgently want otherwise, the poor find themselves in a posture that benefits the grace of God. In their state of neediness, dependence, and dissatisfaction with life, they probably will welcome God's freedom and his gifts more than many of us. Then he wrote this, as an exercise, I went back over the list and I substituted the word rich for poor. And then I changed it to the opposite response. The rich do not know that they're in urgent need of redemption. The rich rest their security not in people or in God, but in things. Next he writes, I tried something far more threatening. I substituted the word poor for I. Reviewing each of the ten statements, I asked myself if my own attitudes resembled more of the poor or the rich. I mean, do I honestly and easily uh, acknowledge my needs? Do I readily depend on God and other people? Where does my security rest? Am I more likely to compete or to cooperate? Can I distinguish anymore between necessity and luxury? Am I patient? Does Bible teaching now sound to me like good news or scolding? When I read that, I was struck. You see, I think that exercise for our brother revealed issues not only in him, but the very issues I think God is trying to set this whole church free from. See, right now as I'm talking, I know there's a growing defense in this crowd. Those who you are more wealthy than others are feeling judged and boxed in and wondering where I'm about to go. Others are going, well, I'm not rich anyways, and I'm generous, and I'm not greedy, and I give. So, pastor, this isn't my set of issues, so I'm just going to set back and tune you out, and, and you can deal with the rest of them. And yet, I think we need to understand something else this morning. Before we really get into what James has to say, let's be honest together as a family about where we're really at. We're not all in the same place, I know that. But let's compare ourselves to the rest of the world, shall we? 80% of the world right now lives in substandard housing. Do you know what the average medium cost of a house in Toronto is right now? $357,000. 
Here's another thing. 70% of the world can't read. Can you read? 50% suffer from malnutrition right now. If you have food in the fridge, clothes on your back, a shelter to live, and I'm talking whether you own the house, rent the house, or you're in a shelter tonight, you're richer than 75% of human beings on earth right now. 1% of the world owns a computer. How many computers are in your house? 92% have no money, think about this, at the end of the day. Not at the end of the month or the end of the year. 92% of the world have nothing by tonight. If you have money of any sort in the bank or in your wallet, you're in the top 8% of the world's wealthy. If you have two cars, you're in the top 5% of the world's wealthy. I'm not saying this this morning to use this as guilt or weapon, because guess what? I am one of you. I am most definitely part of the top 5%. I think as we begin this this morning, we need to be aware of the fact that God has blessed us, that we live in one of the best countries in history and in the world. We, of course, need to be grateful for what we have, but we also need to realize right now at this moment, whether you have a job or you've lost a job, whether you're wealthy or not, all of us sitting in this room are wealthy compared to most of the world. And that will affect how we hear the word of God this morning in James 5. It does not allow us to escape and say, that's not me. Now I need to say right up front that this passage has been terribly misused by leaders. Some have said, if you're rich, you're going to hell, period. Others have said from this passage that God wants us to sell all our goods and become poor because that's the will of God. Others have said that this is such harsh language by James, it just cannot be to Christians in any way. It's got to be all about non-Christians, not even seekers, you know, those other people. So we can just tune this out as Christians because it's not our deal. All of that teaching is wrong, it's all unbalanced, and it's all fear-based. Key question as we get going is this, is it wrong to have money as a Christian? Is it wrong to have wealth? Is it wrong to have some savings? No. God is the giver of good gifts. What did God say as the people of God were moving into the land of Canaan that he gave them in Deuteronomy 8? He says, look, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. God is the one who invented the idea that we produce wealth. But then what does he say? Don't forget who gives you the ability in the first place. What does Proverbs 10.22 say? The blessing of the Lord brings wealth and adds no trouble to it. The battle that we're about to face this morning and in the next service and the service after that is not about wealth in itself. The battle which is at the heart of much of our struggles is this. Do we trust in God or do we trust in money? The battle is about the heart. The battle is do we take the time to invest what we have in things that last for eternity? The battle is when we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. Or we pray, seek first the kingdom of God. And then we do the opposite with our time and our money. Here it is. What will we do with what we've been given? Small or large? Invest in things that really ripple into eternity? Or into things that just fleet and go away and we think are cool for today? What have we learned in this series so far? James says to us clearly, the lordship of Jesus is present. When you look at your time, and when you look at your money, you know, Dave gave us that challenge this week. Did anyone go back and look and really look at how we use our time and money and ask the question where our priorities are? James, here in this most difficult passage, then gives a warning to non-Christians and to us as Christians. 
and also gives great encouragement to those who have been oppressed by the wealthy. So James now, robed, and I would say in an ancient garment of prophet, cries out to the whole world and to us as a church these words. James chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, all of us, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Anyone encouraged so far? He says, now listen. He says, come on now. Listen up. Pay attention. For what I'm going to say is full of landmines for you. It is complex and gray, he says in North America. But for heaven's view, it's nothing but clear. If you are rich, you are called to weep and wail. Weep means to sob out loud. It means to lament. Again, James uses the language of death because this is a call to mourn over sin. The word weep is used again and again in Scripture as a reaction of the one that has intense shame and guilt before God. Wail is a stronger word, a scarier word. It means howl, shriek, scream. This is despair, uncontrollable, violent grief over sin. It is the reaction of the people of God when they came to their senses as God sent prophets and they heard God's rebuke. Wail is only used in the Bible when he speaks to his people and they had a reality check. And the reality check is this. Ready, everyone? There is a misery coming upon you. What does that mean? It means this. We all will face the living God, and we will give an account about how we used our things and our money and our resources, no matter if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. But then James goes deeper. He goes to a place where probably we don't really want him to go. He outlines four sins connected to money. Greed, which the Bible, by the way, calls idolatry, is present in the world and also in the local church, if any of these four acts take place together or separately, here they are. When we hoard wealth, when it is gained unjustly, when it is self-indulgently spent, and finally, when money is gained ruthlessly. Hoarding money and things is a terrible sin, widespread among Christians. I mean, why does God give us wealth? He gives us wealth to further his kingdom, to help people that are in need, to care for the poor, to continue to support kingdom initiatives. He says your wealth, verse 2, is rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. He quotes his brother Jesus. Wealth is a general term for abundance, but then he uses the word catch it, rotted, which is a term used for food. One said James indicts the rich in his time for uselessly hoarding food that would rot. They believed that by hoarding food, it would allow them to eat and drink and be merry for years to come. But in the end, it would rot and be useless in general. In biblical times, money wasn't just connected to food. It was connected to clothing, very much like today. Much of the time, though, garments were heirlooms and they were dowries at wedding. And what does James say? He says, moths have come and eaten your clothes. You store up more and more and more clothes. But what's the point? In the end, it's only going to be eaten by moths and it's all going to go away. He moves from general wealth to food to clothing, but then he moves to currency, money. And uh, the currency of his time, gold and silver. And he says these things in great bluntness. Your gold and your silver are corroded. They are rusting. Now, gold and silver can't corrode truly like that, but that's not his point. What he's saying to us, and he was saying back then, is this. Ready? There are no U-Hauls to the afterlife. The Egyptians got it wrong. You cannot take what you own. And by the way, your riches, large or small, will not help you when you face the living God himself. Money, he says, and things and possessions are not God. But many Christians act 
like they are. One wrote, in a sense, rust will be a sign calling people to repentance. In effect, the image of rust is a witness to what will happen if we don't repent. In the final judgment, when we face the living God, the worthlessness of what the rich have trusted in will demonstrate how worthless their lives had become. He says in verse 3, the corrosion will testify against you, will eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Well, some of you go, oh great, well that's not me, we're not in the last days. Oh yes, we are. The last days started at Christmas. In Scripture, the last days starts with the beginning when Jesus came into this world and will end when Jesus returned, between the first advent and the second. And basically this is saying, during the end of time, which by the way we are in at this moment, you store up more and more and more and more and it will amount to nothing. Food, clothing, money, he's saying all of it's temporary. It is foolish to rely on, to put our hope in, to put our trust in. All of this will eventually go away. No treasure has permanency. All things are subject to perishing. Poor or rich, middle class, upper class, lower class, blue collar, white collar, job, no job. All of us in this church as Christians have done the above. This is not talking about being stewards and being financially savvy. This is talking about hoarding. But then like a doctor going deeper, he finds another problem. He confronts some of us that have gained our money unjustly. He says, look, the wages that you have failed to pay the workers in your fields are now crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Day labor at that moment in time was central to their economy. If you were in power and you defrauded your workers, there was nothing there could, they could do. They couldn't go to the government. There was no follow-up. And that is why God in the Old Testament commanded those, ready, who had power to always honor their agreements and always, always help the poor. Deuteronomy 24, do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he's a, brother, a, a, brother, a fellow brother Israelite or an alien living among you in your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and he is counting on it. Otherwise, here's the threat, otherwise he actually might cry out to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin, something far more dangerous than getting wealthy. James says at that moment in history, the cries are now in motion and they have already reached the Lord Almighty. I mean, this is huge. God will hear the cries of those you rip off, those you do not honor, and those you have stolen from. And by the way, at that time, it was life and death. If you did not pay someone every day, it would lead to murder through starvation and neglect. That's why James's language is so strong. It is the same language. Everyone ready? It's the same language used when Cain committed the very first murder in history and his brother's blood, it says, cried out from the ground. And oh, let's all just remember, why did Cain murder Abel? Oh, that's right. It was over worship, money, tithes, time, giving to God. It's amazing how we still struggle with this issue 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 years later. Hear the word of God, James, in Genesis. Now, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. James is saying, who will come to the poor's aid? 
Who will we face in the end of time and give an account for our money and how we've treated others? James picks one name of God that invokes awe and fear, hope and terror. He is called the Lord Almighty, which is the Lord of hosts, God of angel armies. It is the title used by God when he goes to war against his enemies. Well, at this moment, early in this morning as we're shutting down, not wanting to hear anymore, as we're starting to think now about Swiss chalet and lunch, kids, naps, as thoughts are crossing through many minds like, well, I didn't come to go to church to get yelled at today. I wanted to be encouraged this week. I didn't want to talk about money again. God says to us, I am a loving father, and I do this because I love you, and I'm not done yet. James turns to the next thing, He says, wealth, when its focus is self-indulgence, is dangerous. He says, from hoarding without thinking about eternity to stealing, now to the sin that money is all about me and what I want alone. And by the way, you don't need to be real rich to do this. You've lived your life on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. He says, you live in luxury. You've ate your fill in Greek, it says, and you've become fat. You delight yourself in you, 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 and you, and and no one else. You are self-indulgent. James says, you lead a life that is luxurious and voluptuous. And before you say, that's not me, just remember the rest of the world. It's about you, your family, or your friendship circle. And that can become gross indulgence, a life of wealth while ignoring the needs of the poor and while ignoring also the call of the kingdom. He says that is dangerous. But then he says something that seems very unkind, very un-Canadian. It violates our nation's view that faith is private and we have the right to define faith the way we think it should go. He says, by the way, judgment really is coming. Not all of you, but many of you indulge before destruction. You really don't, even as a Christian, really every day think you're going to have a face-to-face with the God you love and worship. He says, you have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. The image is a force feeding of an animal before they're slaughtered. And he says, the rich, the wealthy, we eat and indulge and indulge and indulge. And he says, that very act will be the very thing that testifies against you when you face the God we worship in this church. Well, with that overwhelming picture, James brings his last indictment. He says, you have condemned and you have murdered innocent people who are not even opposing you. He says, look, the final point is this is the darkest place. This is a place where conscience and moral thinking and worship disappear. For some, not all though, their actions personally or through their businesses have led to the murder of innocent people. This crooked, unhuman path starts with simple greed. From hoarding to stealing to non-eternal thinking, lived out in the use of wealth and money, now to the death of innocence. In James' day, it was landowners not paying the workers. In our day, it takes many forms. Some of you are the innocent sitting among us. There is no doubt, all of us know, right? In the last 18 months, have we not seen this? Have we not seen corporate people make decisions that have brought absolute death to the innocent? Where all sorts of people by the millions have lost their jobs and their savings because it started with lying, slander, and what? Greed? Let me say, if you are one that has lost your job because of the sin of others, you have every right to cry out before the living God and say, I demand justice. One thing we forget is most of the Bible was written not to the rich, but to the poor. 
One of the heartbeats of James chapter 5 is to give those that are oppressed hope that there will be a final accounting. And that was the very thing that allowed them to continue to walk in their faith when they had very little. But it goes beyond that. Many, many Christians have suffered and died because they've stood up against this. A modern example is the bishop or archbishop, Romero, who lived in El Salvador. He stood up against the government and a very small select group of wealthy people that were oppressing the poor, and he said, this must end. And he was murdered in his church during communion for doing it. And yet, as I read one of his sermons this week, his words, not only against the wealthy elite, but against the church, were just as direct. He wrote these words, it would be better that many don't even call themselves Christians because they truly don't have faith, he said. They have more faith in their money and possessions than in the God who fashioned their possessions and their money. James comes to us this morning with very difficult words and says, this is not about how much you have. It is about the issue of worship. I wrestled all week with what to say out of this knowing that I myself am also under the indictment like all of us. I wrestled, I prayed, I struggled. And I believe these are some of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of this church, is trying to say to us here. So just hear them right now. If you're a seeker this morning, you are not a follower of Jesus yet. God clearly speaks to you these ways. If you trust in who you are, or what you have, or what you want, if you spend your life collecting or trying to collect, you will be eternally lost because money and power and things truly are your God. You look for salvation in things or in others or yourself. That is why we as Christians do not put trust in anyone or anything but the Lord Jesus and his work. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. Three days later, he was risen from the dead and now says, hear this, because I have conquered and taken your sin, If you embrace me as Savior and Lord, that sin is absorbed and removed. And then, hear this seeker, and then you will no longer be in bondage to your wealth that you trust in, or you will be set free from spending your whole life trying to be rich and becoming bitter when it doesn't happen the way you thought it was supposed to happen. Hear this at this moment. This is a holy moment. Life and death in the now. Life and death and eternity are in your hands. God asks you this question. What God will you worship? Will you worship the God of things and money or the attempt at those things? Or will you worship the living God who brings freedom? It is in your hands to choose. What will you do? What will you do? We live in a culture that cries out there is only one God and its name is things. And as a seeker at this moment, if this is you, then pray this prayer for freedom. I just feel compelled to do this. So just let's all close our eyes and we'll do this. And then I'll lead us as Christians in some other prayers. Lord, I've lived my whole life attempting at things, money. I've given my faith in those things and not in you. I repent. I turn. I don't want this anymore. I want to know the living God. I ask forgiveness for trusting in my wealth or spending my life attempting to get it. Lord, set me free. 
completely. I want to know the living God through Jesus. I turn from my sin. I put my trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. I ask for a new start that is completely unnormal, but very godly. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's you, make sure you tell someone you've done that today because your life is about to be reoriented. But let's go to the majority of us. James has written to Jesus' followers, right? What is the Spirit saying to you? Honestly, what is He saying to us? Well, I think it's about the Lordship of Jesus. Some of us behind the scenes in this church are at the, at the point where we're crying out to God and saying, do whatever, God, you need to do to this church to make it what it's called to be. I know personally, I, John Thompson, am at the end of myself. I know more than I've ever known before. I do not have the power to change my own heart, let alone your heart. I can't make us love God. I can't make myself or you want the lordship of Jesus, to love the things of God, to care for the poor, let alone care for those who are spiritually lost. And, and, and so we pray as a church, right? Oh, God, move, uh, revive our church. And yet this money thing seems to be so huge for us, even the faithful among us. So here's two ways to respond this morning to begin the conversation. Christian, is money, are things, wealth, this life, a God for you. One wrote, most Christians in the northern hemisphere simply do not believe Jesus' teaching about the deadly danger of possessions. Christians, he's writing to the United States, live in the richest society in history, surrounded by billions of hungry neighbors, yet we insist, even as Christians, for more and more. I'm one of them. If Jesus was so un-American that he considered riches dangerous, then we as Christians have a decision. We either need to ignore Jesus' message or just reinterpret it. What did Jesus say to us? Our master, the lover of our souls, the one who is the head of this church. Did he not say this in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. See, James quoted him. Where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, where you spend your time and your money, that is where your heart is also. Period. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. Either you will hate the one or love the other. You will be devoted to the one or you'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Is this saying that we can't have savings? No. Is this saying our RSPs are evil? No. Is this saying we can't have a few nice things? No. What is Jesus saying to us? You cannot worship God and money. Your trust either needs to be in me or in those things. There is no in-between, he says. The question is, hear this please. Christian, is this you? Then the answer is to pray this prayer. But for you who have just said in your mind, no, no, that's not me. Because I did that at first. I stopped and re-prayed all week. Because our ability for self-deception, even as Christians, is so huge. We tend to be blind when we even think we're seeing. Here's the prayer I'd like you to pray if you honestly can. I'll say it first. Lord, do whatever you must do to change me. For your glory, for my freedom, and so the world can really see Jesus is in me. Only pray it if you can. So join me if you pray, and then I'm going to do one last thing. God, some of us come before you right now, wealthy or poor or in between, and we're, we're being really honest. We hear James, and it's offensive. We hear you, and it's uncomfortable. And to be honest, some of us have just realized that we have 
two gods in our lives. And so we pray this prayer because this is what revival is really about, real change. Lord, do whatever you need to do to change me for your glory, for my freedom, and so the world can really see Jesus clearly in me. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In the name of Jesus, amen. I end with these words today, realizing that this is going to take a long time for all of us to process. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote these words to a young pastor just like me, overseeing a few churches, not just one. It was a guy named Timothy. And Paul, following in the great line of James and Jesus, said these words, Hear them afresh. Open your ears and your eyes. No offense, just hear them as Scripture. Paul said to Timothy these words, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Do you notice he didn't say it was wrong to be rich? It's what happens with it. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, and to be willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. I read those words this week to myself, prayed over them, thought about it, and so I do this in utter humility. As your pastor, I command you, I command you who are rich, in this present world, don't be arrogant. Do not put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Put your hope in our God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I command you to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous as a church, and be willing to share beyond our standard of living. In this way, you will lay up treasures for yourself as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that you will take hold of life that is truly life. Jesus says, I came to give life and life abundant, and it's not found in deep materialism. Last week, Dave said to us that his prof used to say, Christians don't lie, they just sing lies. I thought that was great. I went back and I reread the song he quoted to us, and I think it's a great way to actually end our service and pray as the worship team comes out. He only quoted one line, but as I read the whole song, it struck me how absolutely intense it is. So if you'd like to join me in prayer for our church and for you at this critical moment as we continue to struggle what it means to be a Christian in the wealthiest place on earth. Join me now. We pray this out of the song Hosanna, written by brothers and sisters in another very wealthy nation of Australia. God, hear our prayer. Heal our hearts and make it clean. Open our eyes to things unseen. Show us how to love that you Show us how to love like you loved us first. Here it is. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. I love this. As I go from nothing into eternity. Well, Lord, I've struggled all week. I know that. (laughs) Help us as a church to really be people who reflect the Lord Jesus. Whatever the cost, it just doesn't matter anymore. Whatever the cost, make us people that
that are so in love with you that things and money do not bind us. Make us a generous community. And I know many are here and honor them for being generous. But Lord, I pray it not for one segment of the family. I'm asking this for the whole family. Do a new work. We ask for a real revival, which is always found in time and money first. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who loves us despite our sin and honors us when we're oppressed. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca. 